Thank you for downloading this episode of New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book that takes a deeper view at some area of world sport, and we talk with the author. For this episode, my guest is Eric Hall, who teaches history at Georgia Southern University. We are discussing Eric's new book, Arthur Ashe, Tennis and Justice in the Civil Rights Era, published in September 2014 by Johns Hopkins University Press. As we hear at the start of the interview, Eric had been surprised at the start of this project to learn that there had not been a scholarly biography of tennis star Arthur Ashe. The book that he ended up writing is thoroughly researched, revealing aspects of Ashe's life and personality that were usually overlooked in the typically positive press coverage of him during his life. Eric also places Ashe in the broader contexts of race, sport, and politics in the U.S. from the 1960s through the early 1990s. I'll add that the book is an engaging and enjoyable read. I learned a lot from Eric's biography of Arthur Ashe, and I enjoyed my conversation with him. Here's my interview with Eric Hall. My guest this week on New Books and Sports is Eric Hall. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Bruce. So to start out, we typically ask our guests for a, uh, a bit of background about themselves. So I'll ask you uh, to s- tell us something about yourself, and, and particularly, why don't you tell us where you, where you got your interest in sports history and, uh, and the history of the Civil Rights Movement. Sure. Well, I grew up uh, in a suburb that bordered the south side of Chicago, um, a suburb called Calumet City, the, the uh, fictional home of the Blues Brothers. Um, and, and I grew up a huge sports fan, big Chicago sports fan, the Cubs, the Bulls, the Blackhawks, uh, the Bears, unfortunately. Um, and so I, I had a deep appreciation for sports growing up. would spend hours throwing a ball off my family's uh, ball. Um, and the community that I grew up in was also very racially and ethnically diverse, and it was a very changing community. Um, so I grew up very acutely aware of, of race uh, and ethnic tension, um, and uh, the, the issues of poverty and, and, and things like that. So I, I was very much aware of, of it growing up. Uh, I attended um, St. Joseph's College uh, for my undergraduate um, and majored in history. I wanted to be a history teacher um, in, in the high schools. And um, my advisor at the time, a wonderful historian by the name of Bill White, uh, suggested my freshman year that I pursue a Ph.D. in history um, and teach at the college level. Um, and, and really, ever since that freshman year, I, I followed through and, and ended up at Purdue University. Um, and initially, I started out as a historian working in the 19th century because I'd been told that, that jobs in the 20th century were very hard to come by, and, and the 19th century would be my best bet for, uh, for a job. Um, but I couldn't really escape my love and interest in sports. And, of course, Randy Roberts, um, a, a very famous uh, sports biographer, was on the faculty at, at Purdue, uh, and I began to kind of work with him. I did a paper with him on bodybuilding and, and started to kind of go into the area of sports. Um, but eventually, um, I came to the topic of Arthur Ashe really by kind of happenstance, the way that many historians do. Um, my wife and I were walking the streets of Ann Arbor, Michigan, um, one afternoon, and um, where she would eventually go and, and get a Ph.D., and we were talking about research topics for a seminar that I was going to be taking on African Americans in the 20th century. Uh, and my wife just sort of blurted out, you know, what about Arthur Ashe? 
what about writing about Ash as a topic? And I said to her, you know, I'm, sh- I'm sure that there's plenty on Arthur Ashe. Uh, I-, I had assumed that there were biographies, um, it, mobile biographies, all kinds of, of stuff. Um, but I, when I went home, I, I realized that in, in doing the preliminary research that there wasn't any kind of a scholarly biography on Ash. Um, and there weren't really very many articles or book chapters about him as well. Um, so, and, and in really starting to research Ash and starting to look at his background and his life, um, and I mean, I, like most people, I, I knew that he was a, a very famous tennis player. I knew that he had died of AIDS. Um, but what I didn't know at the time was the extent that he was involved in the anti-apartheid movement, the extent that he was a public intellectual late in his life in the United States, that his involvement in the civil rights movement. And the more that I did research on him and the more that I realized what a multi-layered, nuanced, uh, complicated character that he was, I knew that there was not only a seminar paper there, but uh, a dissertation as well. Uh, and, and Randy, who had played, who continues to play tennis um, recreationally and, and knows tennis like the back of his hand, um, suggested that this could be a, a very good um, book project as well. So that's kind of how I came to to the topic of writing about uh, Ash in general. So this started as your dissertation research, as you said, and uh, and you have an essay in the back of your book on the sources that you used. And so uh, Ash wrote himself and co-authored for, uh, for autobiographies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you also point out he was unusual among athletes in that he left his collected papers, which is, I would think, was just wonderful for a, for a historian. Mm-hmm. So so what did you find in, in Arthur Ashe's archive? Well, just to step back here for, for a second, uh, it is absolutely rare that an athlete would leave so much paperwork, um, both published and unpublished. Um, there was a wonderful article in, I believe, Reviews in American History a number of years ago called Telling Truth from Tales, where they looked at sports, books, um, as it really being difficult to write about athletes who don't leave these records. Um, Ash, you know, as you mentioned, had, had written a number of autobiographies, some a bit more ghost-written than others. Um, but his family, following his death in 1993, donated his papers to the Schoenberg Center for Research in Black Culture at Harlem. And you know, if you were to go to Harlem now, you can look at you know 25 to 30 boxes of his of his personal letters, his personal artifacts, his scrapbooks. Uh, and what I found was somebody who was um, uh, thought very deeply about issues, um, wrote many, many very in-depth letters on all kinds of issues, from poverty to uh, amateur athletics to apartheid uh, to eventually um, AIDS and HIV when, when he uh, was diagnosed in 1988. Um, so I found all kinds of letters back and forth between him and friends. Um, one of the most interesting sections, which was actually multiple folders, was, was simply complaint letters from people writing about how they didn't appreciate the behavior of uh, Jimmy Connors and John McEnroe when he, when he was the Davis Cup captain in the early 1980s. And there are scores and scores of letters um, of people just begging him to do something about these, uh, these two athletes. Um, but there are personal scrapbooks, there are handwritten notes, um, uh, just all kinds of, of, of really great materials, contracts, interviews that he had done uh, in writing his book, um, Hard Road to Glory, the history of, of black, first history of black athletes. Um, so it's, it's just really a treasure trove that you don't um, have with most athletes, quite frankly. Let's turn to the book, Eric, and uh, to start, can you tell us about Ash's early background? So he, uh, he grew up in, in Richmond, Virginia, so uh, why don't you tell us about his, his family? He grows up in, in Richmond um, in, in the late 1940s and, and into the 1950s, and Richmond at the time is a very 
segregated southern city like most. Um, he grows up in the north side of Richmond, which was really divided geographically from the rest of the city. Um, he, the, the, the parks were under-maintained, uh, the facilities were under-maintained, segregation was, was very much the rule in, in Richmond. Uh, he remembers growing up, uh, riding on the bus and seeing that line um, that separated the white from the black section uh, of Richmond. And he's unique among black athletes, because uh, I mean, a lot of the famous black athletes didn't really grow up in very segregated southern cities like Ash did. Um, but his, um, his 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 mother passes away, um, dies when he's very very young, um, due due to complications um, from a pregnancy, um, and his his father really kind of takes the takes the onus of raising him. And his father is a strict disciplinarian. His father um, encourages him and, and demands that he read vigorously, that he um, always has a place to go, that he's never just hanging around. Um, and, and part of that is to kind of uh, that being a, a black youth growing up in the segregated South, um, it was a very very dangerous place if you were wandering the streets or if you uh, looked at a, at a white person in the eye. Um, so his father had these series of commandments uh, for him. He had to, he had to be at school at a certain time, uh, and he had to be home 13 minutes exactly or whatever it was after school was dismissed. Otherwise, he would be in trouble. Uh, he had all kinds of chores and tasks that he had to to accomplish. Um, and, and part of why his father did that was because his father was aware of, of cases like the lynching of Emmett Till in 1955 and, and other um, incidents. And, and he really um, used discipline as a way to kind of keep his son safe uh, and out of potential trouble in the segregated South. So then how did, how did Ash get involved in tennis then? Well, it, it, it kind of happened by happenstance. Um, his, his family lived, his father was a, a policeman in charge of Brookfield Park, which was the African-American park in Richmond at the time. Um, so his, his family lived on a house that was right on the edge of the park. So he would spend a lot of afternoons uh, in the park, uh, swimming in the pool, playing football, playing baseball, running around. Um, and one afternoon, he happened to um, watch a, a young tennis player named Ronald Charity, who was a star at Virginia Union at the time, and uh, was just kind of watching him play, watching him hit. And, and Charity saw that he was interested in tennis um, and, and kind of came up to him and said, you know, what's, what's your name? And he says, my name's Arthur Jr. And he, he knew the name because he knew his father had, had, was the policeman in charge of the park. Um, and he says to, to to, to the young at to young Ash, you know, do, do you want to learn how to play? And Ash said, Yeah, I would love to learn how to play. Um, so he kind of he learns from from Ronald Charity um, and begins to, to to learn the game in the fields of Brookfield Park. Eventually, Charity tries to to register him for tournaments uh, outside of Brookfield Park in Bird Park, which was the, the 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 kind of white mainstream tennis facility. But they would always find a way to to keep him out. Either his materials arrived, you know, too late, or they were incomplete, or um, you know things like that, but um, you know, so he he learned the game through through charity um, at a time when, quite frankly, many many black players were most black players were not, or most African Americans were, were not playing tennis. Um, so it's sort of an unusual sport for for an African American at the time. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you mentioned that uh, he would be disallowed from from these tournaments. So uh, as as he was playing, and particularly as he was uh, growing into his teens, and it's apparent he was he was a great player. He would still encounter uh, racism when he would try to enter tournaments, not only in Richmond but but throughout the East Coast. Elsewhere, sure. Um, I mean, at first he simply wouldn't be allowed to play. You know, like I, like I had mentioned, um, one of the, one of the key things, and this is not just for tennis, but other ways to keep African American African American athletes out, was to to say that your application never arrived. 
um, it just never came, or or it was or it was incomplete, or or something like that. So he would get there, and they say that his application um, just just kind of never got there. Um, in other instances, he was allowed to compete in tournaments, but it was very clear that um, Walter Johnson, who would eventually mentor him out of Lynchburg, um, would have to drive the team there. Um, they would play their matches during the day, then they were supposed to get out of the, the city by, by nighttime, that there wasn't supposed to be any lingering or staying in a hotel or, or hanging out. Um, so even when he did start to integrate the tournaments, um, you know, he would hear uh, parents of, of white players yelling you know, the N-word at him and, and other uh, slurs. Um, so racism was something that he continued to experience well through the time that he was a, a youth, a player in his youth and, and into his amateur years. And still, he was uh, gaining a national reputation already when he was uh, when he was a teenage player. Sure. Yeah. I mean, he was he, he was so good. I mean, he got he was very much um, like a Jack Johnson um, that it got to the point where it was he was just such a good player that you you couldn't justify a reason why you would keep him off the court with white players. Um, I mean, he was beating, also in the ATA, he was beating African-American players who were much, much older and much more experienced than he was as well. Um, so at, at some point, he, he was starting to get recognized uh, nationally, was ranked, um, and, and they just kind of couldn't keep him off the court. Um, mm-hmm. with players. And, and the fact was, too, he was um, a very, very disciplined player. He was a gentleman on the court. He never showboated, never threw his racket, never screamed. Um, he was told to play any shot within two inches out of uh, within two inches of the out of bounds line to avoid the the appearance of cheating. Um, he conducted. He was he was often the classiest player on the court, and he knew as an African American at that time, the classiest player on the court had to be um, an African American. So Ash went to uh, UCLA in 1963 to play tennis, and at the time UCLA had had a reputation as being perhaps the best school for talented African-American athletes. Jackie Robinson had gone there. Rafer Johnson, the decathlete, had been the class president. Uh, so what did, what did Ash find uh, when he went to UCLA? How did, how did he like his time there? Uh, he, he generally had a good experience uh, at UCLA. Um, he spent most of his time, quite honestly, either playing tennis or traveling um, with, with uh, amateur tennis. Um, was not particularly involved in the movement when he was at UCLA. He did, however, um, realize uh, the, the, some of the smoke and mirrors that existed at UCLA, that, yes, they had a, a reputation of um, sort of producing these, these fantastic black athletes, um, Jackie Robinson um, among others. But on the other hand, you know, if you there, – there were few fraternities that you could join if you were an African-American. There were uh, very few places to, to live on campus if you were an African-American that um, racism was still very much a problem in, in California and in Los Angeles. And, you know, he would see this. The, the one instance um, that comes to mind is uh, very early on, I, was, I believe he was a freshman, um, the Balboa Country Club, which is on the um, sort of halfway between Los Angeles and San Diego, issued a, an invitation for the UCLA tennis team to come play a tournament there. Um, and they listed the, the players on UCLA's team, but Ash's name was absent from that list of players. Um, and his coach, J.D. Morgan, calls him in and says, you know, here's the deal. We've been invited to play. Your name is absent. If you want us to make a big deal about this, we will. Um, and Ash kind of thinks about it, and, you know, as a freshman, it's a tough decision. Uh, and he says, you know what, just go ahead without me. Um, I don't want to stop other players from, from playing that, you know, uh, um, 
eventually uh, there'll come a point where where I'll, I will be good enough and my stature will be big enough that I can make a a big deal out of things like this. But at the time, you know, he understood that he was just a freshman and that um, perhaps the timing wasn't right for him to to kind of make a movement. And he was very, he was very kind of contemplative as an athlete always was thought about things very deeply. Um, and you know, even with with South Africa later on, he he never wanted to keep athletes from having an opportunity to compete um, simply because uh, of an incident involving him. Uh, you see that first manifested in that Balboa exclusion. Eric, I should ask about uh, uh, the way that tennis worked in in the 1960s because it was it's a very different system uh, from today, where you have you know teenagers competing in in professional tournaments. So, and sure. the the divide between professional and amateur was uh, was was very strong back then. So, can you tell us about the tournaments that that Ash participated in and and how he established his his reputation? The tennis at the time was, and I talk about this in the book um, on a number of occasions, it, it was very, very confusing back then uh, <laughs> for sports writers, for fans, for everybody involved, because you had the amateur circuits, and which would have included Wimbledon, uh, the French Championships, uh, the U.S. Championships, um, where you would have these amateur players playing. Um, and, and then you would have these professional um, tournaments where, um, you know, going back a little bit further, you had people like Pancho Gonzalez, who was a fantastic tennis player, um, or uh, Jack Kramer, who were playing professionally. Um, and you, you really didn't know who the best players in the world were because they never competed against one another. Um, the pros couldn't play amateurs. The amateurs couldn't play the pros. Um, so he, he starts in that amateur system and, and begins, um, you know, playing in the Davis Cup in 1963 for the first time and um, plays uh, at, at Forest Hills in 1959 for the first time. So he, he uh, really stays a, a, an amateur for, for quite a long time. Um, of course, in, in 1968, you see the advent of, of the Open Era, um, in which uh, Wimbledon becomes an open tournament, uh, meaning amateurs and professionals can compete together at the same tournament. Um, and, and the U.S. Open, the first the first ever U.S. Open, um, he's victorious. Um, so it, it, it is kind of a confusing um, sort of deal, but, but he does, he makes a name for himself at least initially uh, in, in the amateur ranks before becoming pro in, in the 1970s. And when he wins that first U.S. Open uh, tournament, he's still an amateur, right? Because he can't he can't accept mm-hmm. the the prize money. He can't accept the prize money. Sure. Um, he, he's eventually given uh, stock. Somebody gives him stock shares of GM stock, which is not a bad stock to have in in, in the late 1960s. Um, and he's allowed to accept that. But uh, yeah, he the, the the prize money goes to the second place to the runner up, Tom Ocker, um, at the time. But um, yeah, what's interesting? I mean, he comes in. He comes in the finals against Tom Ocker um, from the Netherlands, and, and the sports writers kind of aren't sure what to make of it. You know, some some have Ash as the favorite, others have Ocker as the favorite. Uh, it's a matchup between sort of two. I mean, it's it's, it's very similar almost to when the, the the Super Bowl first began, and you had the AFC winner playing the NFC winner, and people didn't kind of know what to make of the matchup or the line or or anything like that. But um, you know, Ash was, and I should mention too that his strength at the time in the 1960s um, was a, he was a servant volley player. Um, for somebody who was very contemplative and calm, and and um, you know, very very careful and calculated about the way he was, I mean, he he was like went crazy on the tennis court, going one end to the other, hitting the ball you know really hard down the line. His serve was one of the fastest the game had ever seen. Um, and, and really, that's the sort of way that he went about beating Ocker in, in 68, which eventually that'll change in the 70s when his skills start to deteriorate a bit. 
So something that I was unaware of uh, until I read your book was that uh, Ash uh, served in the Army after after mm-hmm. graduating from UCLA. So can you talk about that? Sure. He, um, he, 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 when he's at UCLA, um, he, he has the opportunity to um, either join ROTC or um, or he has the opportunity um, to, to continue on as, a, as an officer in the U.S. Army uh, following ROTC. And that's a, the advice to, to stay in the Army following his graduation is, is really offered to him by his tennis coach, J.D. Morgan. Uh, Morgan was a, a, a PT boat commander during, um, during World War II, um, and he, he was kind of aware of geopolitics and, and aware that there were little hot wars popping up around the globe in Korea and Vietnam, et cetera. And um, he knew that if Ash entered the Army as an, as, um, as an officer, that he would have a better chance um, of avoiding combat potentially um, or being placed in combat in a, in a safer role, I guess, um, than being an enlisted man, being somebody who was drafted and, and, and forced to go out there. So... Um, he he, you know, starts out. He he graduates from UCLA and, and ends up in in the U.S. Army, does the the boot camp and all that. But eventually, what happens is he he's at West Point and serves as a data processor, and they they kind of keep him out of um, out of action and, and use him more of a showcase. You know, he, he plays in the Pan American Games, he plays in other larger national tournaments. Um, he appears in advertising for the Army about ROTC. Um, so, you know, very much like uh, Joe Lewis would, would go and, and have sparring exhibitions overseas or uh, other athletes would, would kind of go around and showcase their talents for the troops, um, he, he certainly was not somebody that they were going to send into combat. Um, he was somebody that would serve them better as more of a symbol for the Army uh, than anything else. Mm-hmm. So I want to move into beginning at, at about the same period is, is uh, the beginning of, of Ash's engagement and his uh, awareness of, of civil rights issues. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, so can you talk about how he gets involved in that? But, but also I'll ask you about he, he had quite distinct views uh, from other uh, civil rights activists. So, so can you explain that? Sure. He, um, I mean, he, he, for, in, in, to go back to Richmond for, for a second, he was encouraged from the time that he was young by his father, by his um, first major tennis coach, uh, Walter Johnson, to um, not really challenge the status quo, to, to understand that certainly things were not right, segregation was not right, racism was not right, but that uh, the best thing he could do was to win on the tennis court. And by winning on the tennis court, he would do a lot more for the movement than by uh, speaking up, especially at the time. So he was very, very much encouraged in Richmond to kind of keep his mouth quiet, keep his mouth shut. When he goes to UCLA, he begins to interact with um, students um, from continental Africa, students who have uh, participated in the Freedom Rides and Freedom Summer, uh, and begin to really say to him and, and insist that he speak out, that he's this athlete with a platform and that um, he, he absolutely has to, to make a case. Um, and, and part of what I think I argue, at least implicitly in the book, is that for an athlete of his stature at the time, you, you couldn't be uninvolved in the movement. You had to be involved in, in one way or another, that somebody was going to pull you in. Um, but, you know, he has this very famous debate with uh, Ron Karenga, now Molana Karenga, about um, the, 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 the movement. And um, Karenga says to him, uh, who was um, uh, a founder of the US organization and Kwanzaa, um, you know, he says to him that, that you have to speak out. You're this athlete on campus. You, you have to um, demand boycotts. You have to uh, demand certain types of things. And Ash said, I'm just not, I'm not a screamer and a yeller. I'm, I'm somebody 
um, who thinks you should talk with people instead of just kind of standing up and, and, and screaming and refusing to, to engage with people. Um, so where, where Ash is different, I guess, um, really kind of throughout the rest of his life in terms of civil rights, is that he will really sit down uh, with his political enemies and he will talk to them. And he always believed that if you can get in a room with somebody, if you communicate with somebody, that you can change their opinion at least a little bit. Um, he was never one, at least initially, for boycotts, for disengagement, for divestment. Um, you know, he believed that the best good that you could do was uh, through incrementalism and through really kind of talking to, to people. Um, and so his, his, his journey to civil rights is, is a very kind of gradual one. He gives a, a speech in 1968 at the Church of the Redeemer in Washington. It's, very, it's a very conservative and tempered address. It's, it's right out of the pages of Booker T. Washington. He tells the congregation to don't blame white people, to focus on what you can control, that you know, uh, the, the, there are things you can do individually to, to help break down racism that, that don't involve boycotts or don't involve uh, marching or violence. Um, and at the time, I mean, it was a very conservative speech, criticized by some people for doing it. Um, but it's really, uh, his, his views very much evolve uh, over time, and I think it shows that as a historian, you, you change over time is, is, is very, very important. That these characters, although we think of them sometimes as static, um, they're they're simply not that way um, when you look at them from start to finish. Mm-hmm. So you say his his views evolved, and uh, he gains more of a reputation as as an athlete involved in politics in the 1970s and into the 80s, and uh, and still, uh, and you write about this in the book, his political stances did not meet with approval from other politically active athletes during that time. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah, he, you know, I mean, he was he was criticized by. Stokely Carmichael and uh, Jesse Jackson, in fact, also, who certainly was not radical at the time, um, for for really not kind of um, being as authoritative and as active as, as he could be in the movement, for being out there on, on the lines, the picket lines, for being arrested, um, you know, for, for things like that. I mean, the, the one of the biggest examples where he, he ends up at odds with members of the international anti-apartheid community um, is when he insists upon entering South Africa in, in 1973, um, just to and because I think this is one of the more important areas of his of his back of his biography. Um, he he applies for a visa in 1969 to play in the South African Open, um, and he's denied that visa informally at first, and then formally for what the government says is political and, and racial reasons. He had made a comment about how he wouldn't mind seeing a bomb dropped on uh, Johannesburg. Uh, he had expressed support for African liberation movements throughout the continent, and he had been this really vocal critic of, of apartheid. And for all of those reasons, the government denies him the opportunity to play, even though he is one of the best tennis players in the world at the time. Um, so because of that, because he's directly affected um, by apartheid, he takes a keen interest in, in, in fighting apartheid. He does all kinds of reading about it. Um, reads monographs and articles and, and learns everything that he can about uh, apartheid, and he's determined that he wants to go to South Africa. He wants to visit townships. He wants to meet with government officials. He wants to have dialogue with local journalists. And uh, other members of the anti-apartheid community, specifically Dennis Brutus, um, who had been shot in the back earlier as a, um, when he was in, um, and spent some time in Robben Island, uh, were critical of him for 
thinking that he could make a difference by going there, that the best thing he could do for South Africa was to stay away, was to encourage divestment, was to keep athletes out, was to boycott South African athletes in the United States. Um, and he, he never sort of went away from that point, um, especially at the time that, that the best thing he could do was to go and to talk to people. Um, and that earned him kind of universal scorn among many people in, in the anti-apartheid community. But his position on South Africa also evolved. He becomes uh, much more, much more sharp. And and as you said back in the in the late '60s, he said, "I'm I'm not someone who's going to shout. I'm not going to be arrested." But then he is arrested for his protests Absolutely. about South Africa. Right, and and I think for him it it changes the Soweto uprising uh, is what really kind of changes things for him, as as it does for many many people uh, in the international community. Um, and the Soweto uprising was was a a, a rebellion of of young, mostly in, initially young and and urban youth uh, in townships who were objecting to a variety of things, past laws. Um, uh, learning in in, in in Afrikaans, which is considered a language of the oppressor, et cetera. Um, but th- this is a, just a blatant instance of, of government force uh, used against um, unarmed populations um, in, in, in South Africa. Um, eventually becomes a, it expands, um, older people become involved in the movement, et cetera. Um, and, and he sees that, and I think it, at that point he realizes what, what many people have been telling him for a while, which is that, um, the, the only thing that's really going to change things for South Africa is if the university community tries, to, or if, excuse me, if the international community tries to, to, to cut them off, um, to, to divest, to keep um, athletes, to keep entertainers out of South Africa. Um, he, he's arrested um, in 1985 for protesting outside of the, the South African embassy. Um, so, and he actually he, he fights hard with, with uh, athletes, artists, and athletes against apartheid. To keep um, people like uh, Frank Sinatra and um, uh, John McEnroe from from performing there, so his views he, he does he he does change with the times, and I think realizes that his approach is is maybe a little bit um, uh, naive um, by the late 1970s. Mm-hmm. So something that comes across in your book, Eric, particularly in the in the sections where you deal with Ash and and South Africa, is that. Uh, Ash was a he was a beloved and internationally renowned figure in tennis during his career. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he he um he really becomes a celebrity, this, this international celebrity. Um, and he's very good throughout his life at, at marketing his image, uh, putting out there what he wanted to, to have put out there. Um, he's very deliberate about the comments that he made and, and kind of where he went and where he didn't go. Um, but. You know, he was—he would often appear on on the Tonight Show and and uh, would would uh, appear on uh, television shows and and so people would have known of him. Uh, he was voted the most eligible bachelor. I don't know how many times by different outlets. Um, so he and and while he was he was at the top of his game in, in 1968, 69, he sort of falls off and um, doesn't really regain form until the Wimbledon victory. Um, he's he's definitely one of the more popular um, people within the tennis world, um, not just because of what kind of a player he was, but uh, because he he was a fantastic uh, interview. Um, he was um, just just sort of a, an interesting uh, all around person, um, and and a lot of people wanted to talk to him for a variety of different reasons. At the same time, it, it was uh, interesting, you know, for how much he's a revered figure. Um, it was interesting to read other players' views of Ash, particularly the players whom he coached for the Davis Cup teams in, in the early 1980s after his oh, yeah. retirement. Yeah, he, um, 
and I mean, I think, I think you know, not uh, not to, to to let Ash off the hook a little bit here, but I think anybody would have struggled with that group uh, <laughs> to coach that group. Um, you know, I think even Bill Belichick or you know some of these uh, great coaches today, Joe Madden would have had a difficult with, with those guys. I mean, Ash was uh, he was an old school coach. He believed in different. Uh, he believed in discipline. He believed in deference. Um, he, be- he he had a very much an old school mentality. I, I tell you to do something, and you listen to me, and you you do it with a smile on your face. Um, those players, uh, McEnroe, Connors, um, Vitas Gerolitis, Peter Fleming, were, were ego-driven. Um, they were very confident in their abilities. They thought they knew the way to play tennis. Um, they, they were professionals. You know, they, they were um, so they, they had marketing deals themselves, and so they, they, they didn't think that they needed any advice from him. Um, I think the, the, the best quote that Ash that I can remember was he Ash said something like the squad was a collection of individuals, each of whom was was something of a star in their own right. So he's he's dealing with kind of a group of all stars, um, and yeah, he, he's criticized. Um, he's criticized for not being emotional enough. He's criticized for not yelling at the umpires enough, uh, for not supporting his players when they're out there kind of making a fool of themselves. Um, Pancho Gonzalez. Uh, the old one of the older Davis Cup captains, um, you know, says says to Ash, you know, hey, I know your I know your heart's a little bit weak, but you've got to get up there and you have to be emotional and you have to support your players, um, and you know, so he receives all kinds of, of criticism on that front. Uh, on the other hand, he as I mentioned earlier, he he re- he gets tons and tons, so many letters that he can't even read them all from people who are yelling at him for not corralling these players, not controlling them, um, not disciplining them enough. Um, so he's really kind of between a rock and a hard place there. Um, and, you know, I mean, to, to I think to, to sort of talk about McEnroe and Connors together is, is wrong in the sense that um, McEnroe, Ash really kind of liked McEnroe, I think, deep down inside. You know, McEnroe was somebody who always played for the Davis Cup team, kind of, you know, um, Really was a was sort of a patriot, whereas Connors, he believed, was just kind of a self-centered person who did whatever was best for Jimmy Connors. Um, so it, it, that, that's one instance where you know, he walks away in 1985 from from the Davis Cup. Um, you know, and they had won a cup, but um, I don't think he would say that it was a, it was a success by by any means. I think he was very happy to leave the cup in '85. So I'll ask you what, uh, so he retires in, uh, it was 79 or 80 that he retires from playing after his heart attack? Yeah, he retires 79 in, into 1980. There, there's, he tries to kind of make a comeback a little bit, yeah. but it, it just doesn't happen. So he's coaching the Davis Cup team, but then he's involved, you've talked about his politics, but he's involved in a, a raft of other activities during the 1980s. So oh, yeah. can you kind of just give us the rundown of all the things he was doing during that period? Sure. I mean, he, he's, this is, you know, you could write a 900-page book about Nash, and a lot of it would deal with his, <laughs> his activities in the 80s because he's just so overextended. Um, you know, he's coaching the Davis Cup team. Um, he's... Uh, eventually, by by the late 1980s, he's writing the first history of African American athletes, the first you know history book called The Hard Road to Glory, which which looked at previously unknown um, uh, African American athletes, of which he does all kinds of research, uh, writes the book himself, whereas a number of his previous books have been ghostwritten. Uh, he uh, you know, uh, authors a memoir with Neil Amder in in, in 1981. Uh, he's still very very vocal when it comes to to South Africa. 
um, uh, he's, he's involved in the art, Artists and Athletes Against Apartheid, which um, it begins in 1983 with, with his friend, uh, and the, the actor Harry Belafonte, so he's involved in, in that. Uh, he's giving speeches um, all the time to different colleges and universities and, and high schools, uh, where he's really kind of counseling students to go to the libraries and not think that they're going to be professional athletes. Um, and he also um, takes up the issue of Proposition 42, which was a very, um, very sticky situation um, late, late in the 1980s. Um, and Prop 42 was where the, the, the academic requirements for, for, for students entering college who plan to compete in athletics were raised. So the bar was raised for, for students um, competing at, in, in athletics. Um, and the argument was that some athletes were, who came to college were found to be illiterate. Other, other black athletes um, with scholarships never graduated. Uh, and Ash came came down in favor of the increased requirements. You know, he believed that you know, black athletes would actually rise to the challenge and, and get better grades and study harder and, and, and do better. Um, but he was opposed in, in that um, debate by John Thompson, um, a, a very big, uh, literally and figuratively, um, person at the time, uh, the head coach of Georgetown, John Cheney at Temple University, and of course the presidents of HBCUs and the NAACP who argued that, that standardized testing was culturally biased. Um, so he, he gets involved in a number of debates, he's doing all this, this kind of stuff. Um, and so it's, 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 it's really, um, I get tired just kind of thinking about all the stuff that he was doing um, in the 80s and in the different directions that he had himself in. So we should talk about, Eric, uh, the, the circumstances then surrounding Ash's announcement that he had uh, contracted AIDS. So he contracts AIDS in, sure. in 1988, correct? And then the announcement... Uh, he- he contracts it in uh, '83 from uh, blood transfusion, okay. but, it's, but he doesn't—he's uh, not diagnosed until 1988. Okay, and then he makes the announcement in 1992, and this was this was somewhat controversial when the news broke. So, could you explain the circumstances sure. surrounding that? Yeah, well, he um, in, in 1988 he's diagnosed um, as having not just acquired HIV, but having full-blown AIDS by 1988. Um, and, and they all knew he, he and his wife um, and their friends knew that that it was a death sentence in '88. Um, so he, he really tries to kind of keep it quiet. Um, he says he's keeping it quiet because of, of his daughter, Camera, who was very young at the time and didn't want, um, didn't want the disease to define him for her. Um, uh, and, and he also didn't want the, the disease to kind of overshadow some of his other charitable activities and, and his anti-apartheid activism. Um, and, and you actually see what's, what's, what you can find if you go into the Ash papers in Schoenberg is you see these these letters being exchanged back and forth between him and, and friends talking about, you know, what's going to happen when the press finds out about this, because they are going to find out about it. You know, how, do, how are we going to get out in front of this story when it finally becomes uh, public knowledge? Um, so in, in 1992, um, the, a, a, a writer named Doug Smith um, takes a call from somebody at USA Today who uh, reveals this information about uh, Ash having AIDS. Um, so he goes to, to Ash's apartment to talk to him. Ash thought they were going to talk about his, his A Hard Road to Glory book, um, but he tells him that we have this source that says that you have, that you have AIDS and that we're, we're going to have to go public with it because you're a public figure. And, um, and Ash you know, steps back and, and says, you know, give me the name of your editor. Um, he calls Gene Polinsky, the, the editor of USA Today, and, and really kind of argues with him about whether this is public knowledge, whether it should be public knowledge, that he's a private figure, he's not competing in tennis anymore. Um, and ultimately, USA Today gives him a little bit of time to set up his own press conference um, with HBO, and, and where he's able to announce um, that that he's 
that he has AIDS is on his own. But uh, at the time, it, the, the, the USA Today's decision was, was widely criticized for, for kind of a violation of privacy. Um, that why, why did people, you know, need to know that, that he had AIDS? And, I mean, nowadays we think, you know, if, that, of course, if we find out something about an unathlete or a celebrity, that it is going to be announced. I mean, it's, it's, it's second nature now. Um, but back then it was very controversial um, that many, many, many sports writers and, and, and columnists felt that his, his privacy rights had been violated by, um, by USA Today. And so then after this, this announcement that he has AIDS, uh, Ash went to work on his, uh, his fourth memoir. Um, and, and you write in, in your essay on the sources, you write that Ash tried to reshape his legacy with that, with that book. And I'll ask you, given your familiarity with the full span of his life and with his other writings, uh, was there anything that stood out in, in that last book uh, where you saw a man who had, who had learned lessons or who had changed his thinking? I, mean, I think the the most obvious example is his his views on women, um, where you know in, in the 1970s um, during the the kind of beginnings of the liber- women's liberation movement, um, you had people like Billie Jean King, um, who were arguing that women you know should be paid more, that they should get matches on center court, that they should be treated equally to men. Uh, and at the time, in the 1970s, and this is all public record, um, Ash was, was very resistant to that idea. Um, you know, he, he would say that, you know, men are the exciting players. Who wants to go see women play? They play, play so nice and leisurely that, um, you know, somebody like me or another athlete wouldn't, wouldn't be interested in seeing them play. Um, that men are the breadwinners, that they need the money to support their families, you know, implying that women's proper place is the home and that they're, they're secondary um, income uh, generators for the family. Um, so he was very kind of resistant to that. He called them girls, you know, he called Billie Jean King a girl and girls tennis. And, um, you know, at one point he said in a memoir that if, you know, my future wife, we, it needs to be a 51-49 split with me being, you know, having that extra 2% to make those decisions. Um, in that memoir, Days of Grace, he really kind of says that, that he was wrong back then, um, that Billie Jean King is one of the most influential tennis players, men or women throughout the 20th century, um, and that, that his views were, were very much kind of misplaced. But he also says that, that um, you know, he, that, that he, he kind of says that he was a part, that he was a, a kind of on the bandwagon with, with um, the treatment of women back then. He doesn't make the case that he was out there making comments at, at, the, front, at the forefront of, of men's resistance to women in, in, in tennis. Um, so I think he kind of in some ways tries to, to lessen the role that he actually had in crafting that image in, in the 1970s. Um, so that's that's kind of the most obvious example. Um, but but again, I mean, any of us who've done research on athletes, um, or, or have done any kind of research on autobiographies or ghost-written books, um, know that that people try to polish their images a little bit. That uh, to really get the full picture, you have to you have to do a lot of other research other than you know reading somebody's autobiography. At least that I would caution my students as well that you know don't don't believe everything that you hear, uh, especially in an autobiography. <laughs> so, Eric, I'll ask what you're uh, what you're working on now. What's your new project? Well, I'm actually um, uh, sort of trying to figure that out at the moment. I've got a couple of ideas. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of time. Uh, working on a kind of a couple different ideas. One one set of ideas deals with kind of a smaller, uh, you know, fifty thousand, seventy thousand word book, and then there's kind of a bigger project in mind. But the bigger one that that I'm interested in at the moment is is kind of going back to my hometown and and doing something on the Chicago Freedom Movement in 1966, um, and and possibly doing kind of a narrative of the entire movement. And and for people who who aren't familiar with this. Um, 
this is the the time when Martin Luther King and the SCLC um, and others in the South take the movement north in Chicago's west suburbs and places like Cicero um, and to deal with job inequality and housing discrimination and, and uh, sort of uh, urban racism. Um, and they're met with, with quite a bit of resistance from blue-collar, white, uh, and ethnic workers in, in Chicago. Um, so I think it would be a story about you know, the, the Southern movement coming north um, being um, met with um, these, these forces that King had not really uh, anticipated at the time. And, of course, Richard J. Daley is the mayor at the time, and, and there's the stories with him. And uh, there's a major rally at Soldier Field in Chicago. And so, um, and, and this movement is happening simultaneously to the, the James Meredith March Against uh, Fear that Theorem Good Susian um, looks at in, in great detail um, in, in his new book. Um, but it, but so it would be an opportunity for me to kind of go back home to kind of look at some of the archives, interview some people um, who were part of that, and, and to try to tell that that story um, in its entirety. But that's that's kind of the bigger project um, at the moment. I'm toying with a with a few other little ideas, but um, you know that that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. All right, very good. And the Arthur Ashe book I know has been getting has been getting good press, so congratulations on that. So so far so good. It uh, it was reviewed positively in the in the Wall Street Journal and, and a few other places. Um, and and I keep doing little. Um, uh, did an interview with NPR and 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 other things. So little little uh, reviews and, and opportunities keep popping up uh, as the weeks roll on. So have you thanked your wife for coming up with the topic? I thank my wife every day, uh, not only for coming up with the topic, but for a variety of other other things. I mean, it's it's absolutely incredible to be. Uh, married somebody who's also an academic, um, who, by the way, her book is also coming out uh, in, in March. She looks at Cuban musicians and, uh, and entertainers um, and Cuban Latino communities in New York City and Miami in the 40s and 50s. So we're, uh, we're, we're going to be a two-book household um, very shortly here. You've been listening to an interview with Eric Hall about his book, Arthur Ashe, Tennis and Justice in the Civil Rights Era, published by Johns Hopkins University Press, in 2014. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects like religion, politics, and biography. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter at New Books Sports, or friend us on Facebook at facebook.com slash newbooksandsports. And please visit our related site, The All-Rounder, which features weekly essays and reviews about current issues in world sport from many of the scholars and writers you've heard interviewed on New Books and Sports. You can find The All-Rounder at theallrounder.co. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening, and enjoy your week.